want to uh, start us out in uh, Luke chapter 18. We're going to be reading right through the end of 18 into 19 today. So it's in your, it's in your uh, bulletin, in your, in your handouts, your notes, if you wanted to follow along there. This is what it says. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. And then on to the next chapter in 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will, re I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you. You may be seated. There are uh, some cities that are pretty famous for a specific thing or two. Uh, you could name cities like Boston and New York and Pittsburgh and, and call them out for their love of sports. I could add Chicago in there as well. Uh, the city of New Orleans and Memphis are famous for their love of music. I could add Chicago into that as well. The city of Chicago, though, is most famous for anybody? Whole bunch of different answers. I think I heard somebody say crime. I don't know if that's the right answer or not, but I was going to say their love of food and pizza and things like that, but... So if I were to ask you this morning what the cities of Milan, Italy, Nottingham, England, London, England, and Jericho were famous for, you might be stumped, and I probably would be as well. But all four of these cities were locations of some of the greatest spiritual conversions that have ever been recorded in history. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, but way back in 386 AD, came to faith in the city of Milan, Italy. William Booth, who started the Salvation Army, came to faith in 1844 in the city of Nottingham, England. 
John Wesley had this personal moment with the Lord on Aldersgate Street in London, England. And from our passage this morning, we see that this chief tax collector named Zacchaeus has come to a fullness of faith in the city of Jericho. Now, the city of Jericho is, uh, has a pretty vibrant history. Archaeologists believe that the very first humans settled into that city thousands and thousands of years before Jesus uh, made his way into it. And it makes, it makes it, Jericho, one of the oldest cities in the world. You may remember Jericho being the location of one of the most famous military battles in, in the Bible. If you uh, grew up in Sunday school, you, you learned about uh, Joshua and uh, the Israelites as they marched around Jericho and as they came into the promised land. Historians tell us that at about 35 BC, Mark Anthony uh, presented the city of Jericho as a gift to Cleopatra. And later on, Cleopatra needed some money, I guess. And, and so she leased back a portion of the city to the Jewish leader, Herod the Great. Reportedly, it, uh, Herod the Great, uh, King Herod, almost had to use half of the entire income of all of Judea just to pay the lease for that land. King Herod wanted Jericho because of its economic and its political and its military importance. But following the death of, oops, following the, the death of uh, Anthony and Cleopatra, Caesar Augustus awarded the city of Jericho to King Herod for his faithful allegiance to the Roman government. Jericho uh, in Jesus's time was a thriving city and a very prosperous city. And it was a city in which Jesus was well acquainted and he had been there before. It, it was near the area where John was, where John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. It was near the wilderness where Luke tells us that Jesus spent 40 days out in the wilderness fasting and praying. And he had that encounter with Satan. Jesus also made the road leading down to Jericho, the setting, the scene of one of his most famous parables, the Good Samaritan. And it is here that Jesus's last trip into Jericho as he's making his way down to Jerusalem that we find these two stories here today. And these stories remind us of the tremendous power of what a Christian conversion actually does. There's something so incredible about seeing somebody come to faith and, and uh, celebrating that with them, especially when somebody that when you never expected it and they've come to faith and they start following Jesus and we celebrate with them. And last week we learned that God is at work in their story long time before we ever show up, wooing that person towards Jesus the entire time. And so we rightfully get excited when that moment of salvation comes for somebody that we've been praying for for a long time. And I had more discussions with people this week about maybe that prodigal son or that daughter that you have been praying for. And uh, just said, don't give up. Don't give up. Salvation is coming. Let's believe that together. And so we get excited when we realize that the pole of sin has been broken and somebody has been freed from sin's power. 
We love it when that old life is finally gone and that new life has been born. Or do we really realize that's what's happening at all? Do we celebrate because we think that this person that is saved, meaning that if they die, they're going to go to heaven. Is that what we're celebrating? Or are we celebrating because they're a Christian now, which means they're one of us, and we've been told this is what we're supposed to do. And why are we celebrating? What exactly are we celebrating when somebody is saved? And I think if a lot of us are honest, we would say, I don't really know. I believe we too often have been shaped into a theology that sees salvation just as our debt being paid and a ticket to heaven. None of us would doubt that power of salvation. Uh, The power of being saved is strong, even if that's all it were. But we as Nazarenes, our denomination believes that salvation is much more than that. Salvation is not just about a future destination change. Salvation is more about a personal liberation from sin. And so we're, <clears throat> we are talking about this next kind of grace in this series. So today we're talking about God's saving grace. Last week we talked about God's seeking grace or prevenient grace. So Today we're talking about God's saving grace. So let's ask the question, what are we being saved from? What does this personal liberation from sin mean if we don't understand what sin is? Sin is the ultimate leveling of the playing field. The the word of God says that all of us have sinned and every single one of us here have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that if we say that we have not sinned, then we are a liar. Sin doesn't care if you came from a humble upbringing or from extravagant means. And it's a reminder that all of us are broken and all of us have failed in our life and all of us are in need of a savior. There's not one of us here. There's not one person who's watching online right now that has not sin that understands that. So what is it? What is sin? If you're taking notes, I have a few things here for you to write down. Uh, Number one, sin is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. This is perhaps the easiest form of sin for us to recognize and and to understand. You have the Nazarene version of or definition of sin in your notes. It comes from our articles of faith. But that came from John Wesley. And John Wesley said a long time ago that sin was a willful transgression against a known law of God. So sin is something that we know. Sin is something that is willful. It's something that we know is wrong, but yet we do it anyway. 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. So yes, we're referring to the breaking of the the law of God as sin, as doing something against his will that we know that we shouldn't do. Yes, that act is sin, but lawlessness goes deeper than that. 
This means that not only is the act of breaking a known law of God sinful, but also the attitude that goes with that is sinful. Parents, you get this, or anybody who has ever had a little brother or a little sister, you get that kind of attitude. Have you ever heard this phrase come from the mouth of a little person? I don't have to do what you say. You're not the boss of me, right? You've heard that. That's the attitude of sin. That is what we do to God when we sin. When we know that we're doing something against his will and we figuratively shake our finger at him and say, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want, not what you want. So that is the sin of self-sovereignty. No one's going to be in charge of my life, not even God. I'm going to be the one that's in charge of my life. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. See, it's an attitude of rebellion that refuses to see ourselves as creatures with a creator. We have been created with the design. And through rebellion, we are declaring that we are independent of the one who made us. We're independent of the one who created us. And we're saying we're self-sufficient. We're powerful enough ourselves to take care of our little world. And we don't need anybody else's help. That is sin. That is rebellion. And we are declaring that we are, in fact, our own God. And we don't need a heavenly God, that's sin. If you're taking notes, number two is sin is enslavement. Enslavement. There's a Greek word that is translated into our English word of sin, and it's uh, harmardia. Harmardia. Harmardia means that we are missing the mark, or we're shooting at a target, and we're failing to hit that target. So if we think about that, that includes sins of what we call commission. Sins of commission means that I know that I shouldn't do this, but I do it anyway, right? We know we shouldn't do it, but we just do it anyway. Romans 6, 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Which means that we know we're not supposed to do it, but we keep doing it anyway. The other form of sin is sin of omission, sin of commission, sin of omission, meaning I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. James 4, 17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And so both sins of commission and omission miss the mark set before us by God. God has set before us this target that we are supposed to hit. And sins of commission, doing something we're not supposed to do, or sins of omission, not doing something we were supposed to do, both fail to hit that mark. But harmardia also means something different. Harmardia was a word that was first used by Aristotle, and he was writing about the theater and uh, the uh, actors and the characters that were in a play. And he used it to describe a character flaw that kept getting that character into trouble. That no matter what that character did, they always got into trouble, and uh, that flaw within them was called 
Hamartia. And so Hamartia actually means more than the actions we take or we don't take. It's actually the condition of sinfulness that we find ourselves in. See, sin is our nature. We are enmeshed in sin. And not only are we rebels by nature, we're also not free to do otherwise. Not only do we miss the mark, but we're incapable of hitting it ourselves in the first place. So sin doesn't stop with one little sin. Sin multiplies, sin grows, sin always festers into something totally different than when we started. It might seem innocent at first, but it never stays that way. Why? Because sin is fun. If sin weren't fun, we would never be tempted to be sinful, right? But sin doesn't leave us alone. Sin festers and it grows. And it's like a virus that just is taking over that host until that host dies. See, going to a party could be fun, but where it leads to is not. Hangovers are not fun. Drunkenness is not fun. Driving under the influence is not fun. And it could get worse. Alcoholism is not fun. Addictions are not fun. Detox centers are not fun. Car accidents are not fun. Abuse is not fun. Dysfunctional families are not fun. See, what starts out very innocently can fester and grow and grow. And sin is this vicious cycle that enslaves its participants into a series of deepening levels of depravity. Sin may start small, but sin never stays that way. It evolves and it completely enslaves its host until you fall completely over to its power, losing your true self and no longer able to see the image that you were created in. That's sin. Number three is sin is estrangement. Estrangement isn't a word that we use a whole lot anymore, but sin is not just breaking a rule or a law. Sin is damaging a relationship. Sin is what separates us from God. The very first sin that was recorded in the Bible was when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat from, right? And as soon as they committed that sin, they knew that they were in breach of the relationship that God had set up between them. And their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. And that means more than just a recognition that they didn't have clothes on. Adam and Eve all of a sudden felt exposed. They were suddenly weak. They suddenly felt alienated. They felt ashamed. They felt vulnerable. And up until that time, the only thing they had ever known was this perfect fellowship with God. They felt estrangement. The fellowship with God was just suddenly broken and they felt guilty and they felt shameful of their sin. Sin brings fear and guilt and shame into a relationship. Sin brings alienation. Sin brings condemnation and separation. 
Sin makes enemies out of the best of friends. Sin takes intimacy and turns it into hostility. Sin breaks fellowship. So what are we humans supposed to do about this? This is our humanness. This is who we are. This is our predicament that all of us are in together. Sin is rebellion. Sin is enslavement. Sin is estrangement. So how are we supposed to make this right again? What are we supposed to do with all this sin? Let me just remind you of the greatest news that we will ever hear. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He said, I passed on to you what the most important and what has also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised on the dead, raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Romans 5.8 says this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So what do we do about this sinful nature? Nothing on our own. Nothing. That's why we need the saving grace of Jesus. Let's go back to our stories. In one of these stories, we find a a blind beggar. In the other story, we find a very wealthy man named Zacchaeus. One man was blind, and blindness wasn't an unusual condition in those days. Blindness was often caused when flies would land on the eyes of children as they slept. And this man, uh, this blind beggar, had been an outcast of society, and he spent most of his time begging for money or food and hoping to get just enough so he could survive. There was no help for him. There was no uh, social services. There was nothing like that. There was no help for him at all aside from the crowd that was around him. And this man was doomed a life of misery. In the other story, we have this very wealthy man named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus had made his money for himself. He had become a tax collector, a chief tax collector (coughs) for the Roman government. Zacchaeus was wealthy. He had a house. He had it, had it going on. One man called out to Jesus for Jesus to come close. Jesus called the other man down in an act of obedience. But that's pretty much where these two men's differences stop. They are vastly different from one another, but their stories are actually similar in so many different ways. Both of these men were despised by society. A beggar would have been despised from, for various reasons. He was a beggar. And begging for food or for money was not a respectful, respectful way to make a living. He was blind. And at that time, if you had some sort of uh, physical uh, problem with you or blindness, then people would see you as a sinner, like, what did he do to deserve his blindness? Or maybe his family did something and he is paying the price for his family's uh, sin. Were his parents immoral? Were his parents wicked? Is this guy immoral or wicked? Zacchaeus was despised by his own doing. The tax collectors were some of the most hated people around because they would cheat people out of their money when they collected taxes. 
But Zacchaeus also had another problem. He was short. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal in, in our uh, day and age, but in that day, this would be a reason for people to scorn him. Even the Bible in Leviticus chapter 21 contains conditions of why people wouldn't be accepted as a priest, and one of them is being short. So it's possible that Zacchaeus himself, even before he became an outcast by being a tax collector, had been an outcast his entire life. And people were always making fun of him and putting him down. He certainly wasn't like now amongst the Jewish people. And people would have hated him. Each man also had a void. There was an emptiness inside of them that caused them to go and seek Jesus. Physically, the beggar wanted to have his sight restored, but he knew that no ordinary man would ever be able to do this. There was no medical help. There was no social handout that was ever going to make his life comfortable. And so he heard from those around him that there was this man named Jesus that was coming into town. And this guy, Jesus, is this miracle worker who could meet his need and restore his sight. He had probably heard that for the last three years, Jesus has been traveling around. He's been performing miracles and he'd healed the sick and he made blind people see again. And here's this man with no way to get to Jesus by himself. And then we have Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was rich, but there was still this void in his life. He was empty. And when he heard that Jesus was nearby, it was his desire to do whatever he could to go and just see this man. Who is he? For Zacchaeus was blind in a way too. He couldn't see Jesus. He couldn't see Jesus for the crowd. And so he climbed that sycamore tree to get a good view. Two very different men, two very different stories, yet the same ultimate need. Both the blind beggar and Zacchaeus were participants in a broken and sinful and fallen world. Both of these men had been recipients of and participants in a sinful world, <coughs> though in different ways. Neither could effectively see how the saving grace of Jesus was walking right past them. The blind beggar was loud and he was forthcoming about what he wanted from Jesus. And he said, Jesus, I want to see. And in verse 42, Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Now, we might think that Jesus just restored this man's sight, but this word healed here is the same word that's used in the New Testament to signify salvation. Other Bible translations even say your faith has saved you. So we see that salvation is much more than just this ticket into heaven. Salvation is seen when God takes the broken and makes things well. Salvation is seen when the rebellious come into line, when, when the slaves of sin are set free, when those estranged from God are brought back home. But it's interesting to me that the most scandalous of these two men, the most despised by society, never called out to Jesus at all that day. 
Jesus approached Zacchaeus himself. That's grace. Jesus went up to both men and both men got exactly what they were looking for, the saving grace of Jesus. Jesus restored a blind man's sight, but he healed his soul. Jesus takes Zacchaeus, a broken man who is enslaved by sin, and he sets him free. See, Jesus was the answer to both man's problems. Even though the needs of, of each man were drastically different, the solution was exactly the same. Both men were completely dependent upon the grace of Jesus. When the saving grace of Jesus shows up, then everything changes. Nothing is going to remain the same. Look at what happens when grace comes home to reside with Zacchaeus. Luke 19, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, <coughs> look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I had cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. But then listen to what Jesus responds to him in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The same Jesus who pronounced saving grace over the life of that blind beggar now proclaims healing and salvation. And those two words are the same word. When Jesus spoke to the blind beggar, when Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, he actually used the same word. So now saving grace has entered into the life of this corrupt swindler. Their biographies are different. Their problems were similar. Their need was the same. The saving grace was administered regardless of their merit, regardless of their position or, or their favor. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. See, we're a common people. We have similarities just like that beggar and Zacchaeus did, but our need is exactly the same. And Jesus is here. Just like the beggar, you can call out to him, but you don't need to climb up a tree to see him. His spirit is here. His spirit is alive. And today is a day to praise Jesus for his saving grace. And if I could just speak to those who have already made a decision to follow Jesus and accepted his saving grace in your life, I want you to take this moment to look back upon your own salvation moment. Yes, he did forgive you of all your past sins. But what else did he save you from? See, today is a day to praise Jesus that his saving grace not only forgives, but his saving grace heals you. For any here who have not made the decision to follow Jesus, I want you to know that you can today. Today would be a great day. Jesus willingly forgives us of all of our past, but he also grants his grace to the rebel to the slave of sin and to those separated from him. And Jesus is here and he's waiting for you. You don't have to, <clears throat> you don't have to be less than you know you can be or you don't have to 
settle for less than what you know you've been created to be. There's a way out. His name is Jesus. And he's here with us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you look upon all of your children and you don't see us as just this big, massive ball of sin and all the things that we've done wrong. But Lord, you see us for who we could be, for who we've been created to be. Lord, we know that all of us are affected by the nature of sin. Not one of us here have escaped it. And then so, Lord, we come to you today, and yes, we do need to ask for your forgiveness of our sins. Yes, we do know that when we turn our life over to you that we have a destination change in heaven, but, Lord, there's so much more. There's so much more to be saved from. Lord, for those that have already given their life over to you, help us to look back on our life to see all the things that you have saved us from. That is your saving grace. You have healed us in so many ways. Let us acknowledge you for all of those things today. Let us pause just to give you the credit and the honor for saving us from so many things. And Lord, maybe there's some here today who have not given their life over to you. May they come to you today and ask for your forgiveness. May they start this journey of grace with you. And Lord, may they apply your grace to their life. Lord, today would be a good day for them to turn their life over to you. And we would love to celebrate with them if they would let us know. Jesus, thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for what you have done. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in the future. We ask, Lord, that your uh, grace would be upon our teens as they continue their travel, as they're probably entering into Savannah shortly. Lord, be with them and bless their week this week. Keep them safe, Lord. Thank you for protecting them yesterday, uh, but continue to be with them on their journey. And Lord, uh, we thank you for your saving grace in our life. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.